When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lots of things are better together. Hockey, food, golf. How about a cold one on the patio during a nice spring day? But if you really want to take things to the next level, drink some Labatt Blue Lights with your friends and live life to the power of we. Always enjoy responsibly. Beer, Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, Determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You're listening to DraftKings Network. This is the GM Shuffle. I wonder if Nick Nurse is going to show Joel Embiid the scouting report on him about make him work hard, he's not in great shape. I wonder if Nurse is going to approach it from that point of view. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Welcome to another edition of the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and Visa. I'm your host, Femi Abebefe. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos. Michael, Memorial Day weekend has come and gone. We have a fun episode of the pod on deck here. We're going to speak with Luke Russer, who became a New York Times bestselling author, also a Wall Street Journal bestselling author for his book, Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. We'll discuss or have a conversation with him later on in the podcast here. But yeah. it's, it's been a while since we spoke, Michael. Memorial Day weekend came and went. You got yourself a new head coach for your favorite basketball team, the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah, uh, I, I saw are, that. Are, are, you, are you excited for the Nick Nurse era now in the city of brotherly love? Uh, yeah, I, I am kind of excited because I think this is a little bit when Larry Brown came to Philadelphia, you know, and the Iverson situation, somebody had to handle it. And just reading about Nick Nurse and Nick Nurse's methodology and his demanding and accountability, it's going to be interesting. I wonder if Nick Nurse is going to show Joel Embiid the scouting report on him about, you know, make him work hard. He's not in great shape, you know, that most teams have great talent. You know, we'll tire if we make them work. I wonder if Nurse is going to approach it from that point of view and how he's going to try to get this player to realize that if he ever got in tremendous shape, if he ever got in great shape, then he could really become a dominant player. But, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. But I do, I, I am happy with the idea that, that they hired somebody with a background of diversity in the sense of, being divergent in thought, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody who's not stuck in I got to do it my way. Somebody who actually can get down to the 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 schematics of how do I make these players shine the brightest. Yeah, I'm really curious to see how this works out. Nick Nurse, of course, won the NBA title back in 2019 with the Toronto Raptors. And the only reason that he had a split with the Raptors is because you know things run their course a little bit. And he and Masai Ujiri, the general manager, kind of had a difference of opinion, and the two decided to part ways there, Nick Nurse going into the open market. But he was a highly sought-after head coach. I mean, like, Phoenix was interested. Like, a lot of teams were interested in Nick Nurse's services. He's been widely regarded as one of the top five head coaches in the league, and we've seen what that can do for an organization. I mean, look at the Miami Heat with Eric Spolstra and the culture that they have. If you can implement something like that in Philadelphia, maybe you can get – 
your boy Embiid, the MVP, to start kind of being a playoff performer versus just what we see in the regular season? Yeah, I, I mean, I think to me, if you just look at it and you see what Denver's done, you know, they stuck by Malone. They have a culture. Of mm-hmm. course, Jokic is their best player, and he's the best player in the league, and yet he and he sets the standard of excellence. So that certainly helps Denver. And then Miami's culture, as we all talk about, with Spolstra and Riley. I, I thought Spolstra's end of the game, end of the year press conference after they beat Boston about how he had to pay respect to Boston and that he carries the torch for Pat. Pat believes this. He knows his job is to carry the torch. So, uh, you know, to me, that speaks for itself. I, I think too many of these NBA teams get so caught up in in the the analytical of it, you know. And I, and I was listening to Jeff Van Gundy, which was a fabulous interview on Ryan Russello's this week. And Van Gundy was talking about, you know, all these critics out there you know, and he was talking about analytics. So the best thing he said about critics was he said, you know, and, and Van Gundy's got some incredible qu- quotes. He said, you know, uh, all, how does he? How did he say it? He said, I got, I wrote it down here. He said, rarely right, but mm. never, but never uncertain. Rarely right, but never uncertain. And that's mm. most people that attack you on Twitter. They're rarely right, but they're never uncertain. And then he talked about which I thought was really important for coaches. He talked about correlation and causability like we have this sense in sports that this is why Al Horford taking them to top golf was the reason why why you know the Boston Celtics had that turnaround well really it wasn't but that's that was what we thought it was right mm-hmm. and so I think there's to me as a coach and it really he causes it correlation versus causes I'm going to write this for the daily coach but but I think it's really understanding why you win and why you lose. And most people can't do that. And most people's correlation to winning and correlation to losing is often very wrong. And I think that's one of the jobs that Nick Nurse has as he faces this challenge. You know, I know you don't watch it, but I was watching the end of Succession with Millie the mm-hmm. other night. And, you know, Succession, for anybody who doesn't watch it, is really about a, a – a huge family who's going to succeed the family three kids all trying to gain power all trying to gain control you know it's the old springsteen line poor man want to be rich rich man want to be king king ain't satisfied till he rule everything well all these spoiled rich kids who've never gotten to the who's never even worked hard to get to a finish line they want to be at the finish line and win right mm-hmm. and the one character in it tom is the son-in-law of the uh, of the woman of shiv she he married him and tom is is perfectly tuned to be a highly successful NFL executive because he'll say whatever it says to make sure that whoever wants to do something does it. He is so primed for it. He is exactly why people struggle that have opinions. He'll do whatever. If you want to teach the world's flat, he'll teach the world's flat. You want to teach the world's round, fine. Whatever it is. I mean, they asked him one time, you know, what's your leadership style? And his first question back to the guy that asked it was, well, what, what, what do you prefer? Like, he'll do whatever he wants. He's a puppeteer. And I think to me, if you don't want to be a puppeteer, you, you've got to understand correlation versus cause, causability. No, that's interesting because the puppeteer aspect of it, I think, is what we see oftentimes. I know in Major League Baseball, it's very big for the managers. The general managers kind of run everything from up the skybox and all that stuff. But in the NBA, it almost feels like you're a puppeteer for what the players want. And it's interesting because last night I was watching the Everything But The Chip documentary on the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers. And it was kind of talking about Larry Brown, Allen Iverson kind of butting heads and having like these moments where, oh, like Larry Brown wanted him traded before that season yeah, started. Yeah, traded. Like, like, like Matt, they had Matt it all Geiger, locked in. Matt Geiger yeah. revoked the trade because he had a trade clause kicker in it. Yeah, and it just goes to show you, like now it's more so where every general manager, every head coach is like, okay, how do we keep our star happy? Because we're afraid that the star player is going to ask for the trade or ask out like how Kevin Durant did in Brooklyn or how like James Harden did when he was in Houston to get himself to Brooklyn or then ultimately get himself to Philadelphia. Like everyone is so afraid to kind of have those heart to heart conversations because they feel like, oh my God, this is going to blow up. And then we're going to be back at square one. Everybody's afraid of accountability, Femi. 
I mean, everybody's afraid of challenging somebody. They're afraid of your boy Kyler Murray to challenge them. You know, they're afraid of saying maybe something that could offend somebody, you know. And if you do it the right way, and, and, and I spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, I spent an afternoon with Larry Brown. It was the highlight of my career, sitting there talking to him at a Barnes & Noble in Charlotte, just sipping coffee. And and basically what he told finally got through Allen Iverson's head was, hey, look, you know, right now you're playing one against five. Like, if we stop that and maybe we play five against five, you'll be a better player, which is the same conversation that Nick Nurse has to have with Embiid. Joel, you're a great player. You just won MVP. You did it, and you're not even in great shape. Imagine what kind of shape, if you got in great shape, imagine how good you could be. Imagine what you could do if you were in good shape. And so I think that's part of coaching. You know, I heard Shaq and and Charles debate, the other day, I love that Charles used the line, you're either coaching it or allowing it right, to happen. Yeah. It made me so proud, right? <laughs> it, I mean, it was so good. But to me, what I loved about it was Shaq was dismissing the value of coaches. You know, mm-hmm. that it all comes down to the players. Well, it does come down to the talent, but talent alone can't withstand it. You've got to motivate talent. You've got to drive talent. You've got to push talent. You've got to get talent to play at a higher level than what they're capable of playing or what they think they're capable of playing. And I think you see that in, in, in when you watch some of these coaches. And I think that's Nurse's first challenge in Philadelphia is, look, guys, you know, the reason we haven't gotten to the second round isn't because we're not coaching well. It's because we can't – got to rise the level. Everybody, from me to you to everybody in this building. And it'll be fascinating to see. I, I wish I had a relationship with him because, mm-hmm. I mean, I would be the eyes from the outside to tell him – what the view is because everybody in the building I'm not sure is going to tell them everybody in the building is going to be like Tom and tell them exactly what they're going to all be puppeteers where sometimes we need and I've often talked about this in all my conversations with speeching is we need somebody who's loyal tell you the truth as opposed to somebody who's devoted tell you what you want to hear and I think introspection is going to be a theme of this podcast especially when we speak with Luke Russert coming up a little bit later but I thought Alan Iverson in the documentary last night was really introspective because he said my only regret in my career is that I didn't listen to Larry Brown sooner. And it was almost right. like Larry Brown saw this guy who's an, an, a, a crazy good talent. Like this guy, crazy talented, number one overall pick coming out of Georgetown. And then when he listened and started to buy into what Larry Brown was saying, he became an MVP player. And for Joel Embiid, otherworldly talent. But if he buys into what Nick Nurse is saying, and just not in Embiid's case, but in other cases as well, if you buy in when you have that talent, that's when you can actually become an all-time great player. Yeah, and I think that's that's the challenge, right? I mean, he, you know, how many players have we seen say, "I wish I would have done"? We Le'Veon Bell finally admitted that it was stupid for him not to take the money from Pittsburgh. Thank God. He had everybody on the worldwide leader defending him, too. He had all these idiots on the worldwide leader saying, oh, it's great. Just turn down the $14 million. Sure, you'll make it up. I mean, there's $14 million laying out in the street somewhere, anywhere you want to get it. Just I'm pick just, it up. It's I'm, no problem. I'm still looking. Right? Yeah. And meanwhile, these idiots on TV are to say, defending him because they're too scared to say he's wrong. Right? Whereas opposed to, like, like how many times do you have to listen to an athlete say, I wish I, wish I, wish I? You know, let's do it now so you don't have to wish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good because if you do it now, you can ultimately be like a Shaquille O'Neal or like or a Michael Jordan or one of these guys that was so dominant. And just sidebar note, watching the documentary because it builds up to the crescendo of the NBA Finals and that game one when Iverson has the terrific game, giving the Lakers their only loss that postseason. The highlights of Shaq. I mean, like for people that think that Embiid would ever be in that world. <laughs> Like this, like Shaq, it's they don't Shaq pay attention to it. Like, they don't have yeah. any respect for the past. I mean, we live in such a future generation in terms yeah. of, you know, nobody has any regard. I mean, J.J. Riddick's calling guys that played back with Koozie plumbers. I mean, that's so disrespectful. I mean, you know, I mean, like, just pay attention to it. Watch it. I learned it. You know, there was a time in my career where I thought Johnny Unitas wouldn't even have played today. And after watching it and writing the book, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. And I admitted it in the book. Like, I was completely wrong. I did a thing for NFL Films, and I was completely wrong about it because I was being arrogant and not paying attention to the history. Yeah, well, we're caught up in our own time, and we believe that our own time is is the best of the best, and, you know, that's how that ends up happening there. But, yeah, like the, the Shaq highlights, it was just a, a nice reminder of, oh, my God, this guy was the most dominant player of his generation, and we have still not seen anything that has come close to what he was doing out there in his prime. On the other side, let's get to a column that you wrote, Michael, for VEASAN.com. You're talking about year two players needing to make that jump. 
The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. I mean, these second-round playoffs have been unreal, and we have the conference finals now on the horizon. Make sure you get all those futures bets in before the value disappears. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets in. Instantly, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code SHUFFLE. That's code SHUFFLE for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please pay responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance, see dkng.com slash bball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi. Presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. Yesterday, Michael, you wrote the article for VEASAN.com. It's a column, and you tweeted it out yesterday morning, and the tweet said this. There is no other second-year player in the NFL that has more on his shoulders in determining the success of the franchise this season than Desmond Ritter. And we kind of can talk about Ritter and the Falcons and also expand it further. Some other second-year players that are going to be impactful for their teams going forward here. But Ritter, I think, is in a really interesting spot and just kind of highlighting how these second year guys can really elevate things. I mean, like, why did you decide to kind of go with Desmond Ritter as the the face of this article? That's a really good theme in in general. Well, I I thought, you know, because I I was trying to figure out I was going through the depth charts and looking at second year players and and I I picked about five or six guys that kind of need to have big years. But then I looked at it and I said, like, nobody needs to have a bigger year than Ritter. So then I went back and I watched all the four games that Ritter played in. You know, and starting with New Orleans and ending with Tampa, and he played against Arizona and Baltimore. And I tried to study him in the sense that understanding that that they were keeping it very simple for him, and that they were trying to make sure that he got his feet wet, as I wrote about, and didn't make any mistakes and didn't hinder his confidence going into next season but but it got me thinking about you know when you're a farmer in this world you you have to plant a field and you hope things come in you know you've got so many variables in your life that you can't control the water the sprinkling you know the weather and the wind and all these things right so that Arthur Smith is almost like the farmer. He's got to control this one huge variable can he get Ritter to play at a high level and people will say this is one of the great things about the Van Gundy interview that I love is people have these 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 uh, takes, you know. Well, you know, the receivers make the quarterback better. No, that's completely bullshit. That's completely bullshit. Like, did the receivers make Trey Lance better? Right? Did the receivers make Trey Lance better? Did the receivers make Carson Wentz better in Washington? I, I don't think so. <laughs> did, the, did the quarterback make the receivers better? Brock Purdy does. Right? The quarterback is the driving force to making them better, where they throw the ball, the location, the timing, the rhythm, all those things. So this nonsense, well, we're putting better skill around them. It's bullshit. It's complete fucking bullshit. And so, like, Ritter Ritter has to step forward. And I think one of the things that I learned in my career, a lot of things I've learned in my career, is sometimes we fall in love with the hard worker. Sometimes we fall in love with the great character kid too much. And we don't look at the production because Ritter's one of the great kids, right? He works hard. He's from a winning program. He's overcome obstacle in his life. The reason he's a third-round pick, Femi, 
is because he was so inconsistent in what he was doing. Mm-hmm. No, and I think that the character, I think is a really good part of it because I think character, like, what do you say? The, 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 the saying from Belichick say character sets the floor. Correct me if I'm wrong. What's no, the talent sets, talent sets the, floor, the floor. Character sets the ceiling. Character sets the ceiling there. So it's like, it's easy to see why somebody would buy. Oh, this guy's a character guy. He's going to be able to reach his potential because he's going to work at it and work hard. But, but like you mentioned, what if that potential is not very high? You know, there's, well, like, there's, a, there's a lot of people out there who have really good character and work really hard. But if you're not that talented and and I'm not saying that well, Ritter's he is not talented. talented. Yeah. I don't think it's fair to say he's not talented. I think what it's fair to say is he's not consistently talented. Mm. Like there's too many times that he hasn't been able to, you know, do the things like the first game against New Orleans, he was god awful, right? I mean, he doesn't throw a touchdown pass until week four, the week four of the week eighteen, but it was week four for him. Mm. He was very careful with the football. He was very mechanical in his play, and I think to me the inconsistencies are what drives you crazy because there's moments when you watch him play against Notre Dame and say, "Oh man, he could be a really good. He could be Dak Prescott. He could be really good." Mm. And then the next thing you know, up, oh, not so sure. You know, so you go through that kind of, yes, the zig, the zag, all that. And I think that's what it is. He has talent. He doesn't have consistent talent, which is what we never talk enough about. We don't talk enough about player. We see a flash, but we don't see enough of the consistencies. It's, it's a little bit like you have to watch. If you're going to sign a free agent in football, you, you need to watch the entire season of that free agent, not the clips of the free agent. You have to learn if you can live with the player. Could I live with this guy? Because there's going to be warts. There's going to be problems. You know this. And if you can't live with the player, it's hard. You mentioned the inconsistencies. Where do they lie in Desmond Ritter's game? Is it with accuracy, decision-making? I think it's accuracy. Okay. Yeah, I think it's accuracy. I don't think he has a great ability to process as quickly as he needs to. Now, maybe that'll correct now. In Arthur Smith's offense, it's all play action. Mm-hmm. It's all you know. It's all going to be separate the defense and throw it here or there. He he did not run the triangle passing game. He ran a a high low passing game when he was playing for him. So it's either you're throwing here or you're throwing there. If it's man coverage, this guy will break open. If it's zone, here's where we want to go with the football. And once his head turned to the side he was throwing to, that's where he was throwing to, right? That's where he was throwing to. So once you get four games of that. Right, the defensive backs are like, once he turns his head, just go, just go. You know, I wonder what the ceiling is for their team because if he plays well, they're set up to be a pretty good offense. But then you mentioned there that like, hey, he also we don't have a lot of sample size on him, only four games. Arthur Smith's offense was kind of simplifying things for him in that year one to kind of keep the confidence up there. Do you see a player that can grow into that role of being a productive quarterback? Not maybe a top five, top 10 quarterback, but at least like maybe a middle of the road guy who can at least be productive and take care of a football. Yeah, I think that's, that's what I'm not sure of. I don't have the confidence without the evidence. Arthur Smith does. And so what I try to point out in my column was, is Arthur banking on the character and the kid more than he's banking on what he's seen. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that they've made this decision. And what I wrote was, was this a decision that they they had to make or was it a decision they wanted to make, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the option they chose. I didn't see anything in those four games that would lend me to think, okay, yeah, I got we got this guy. This guy's going to be really good. This guy's got it, you know? And it's concerning because Purdy was really good and he was an experienced quarterback Lamar when he came and played as a rookie he was really good he was experienced Ritter you can't say that he's not experienced he played a lot of games so that that kind of worries you remember last year Atlanta was 31st in passing attempts 31st in passing yards I mean they don't want to throw the football they want to slow the game down and they want to play four corners I think, and I, what I try to do is if you're betting the over at seven and a half on Atlanta, mm-hmm. like some people are, and, and, and winning the South, like some people are, all of this is going to rest with your confidence in that guy. Yeah, they've been the most perplexing team for me this offseason, uh, just evaluating what could happen in 2023, because I don't know what we're going to see from Ritter. Like you said, like I've only, I only watched two games of Desmond Ritter. I watched the, the Ravens game. I had a bet on that when I bet the Falcons in that game. The way that game played out, like they should have been closer. They might have even won that game, honestly. A couple things went wrong in the red zone. Um, then I watched that Cardinals game, that last one there, which, I mean, don't that ask That was me. his best game. Yeah. He let him on a comeback from behind drive. Yeah. He let him on the drive, you know. 
Yeah, don't ask me why I was watching so, that game in week 18. <laughs> that game was just it's like, what are we doing here? But I, I thought he was okay. Like to me, honestly, when I watched him, he kind of reminded me, and I've said this before, I think on the podcast, or maybe it was on the Lombardi line on VEASAN, but it was like a little bit of like a poor man's Ryan Tannehill a little bit. Like, you know, it's like kind of play action quarterback will kind of do what is scripted there. But like you mentioned with the whole Trubisky saying that, hey, if we if it's how we practice it, it'll look good. But if it's not how we practice it, it's not going to look good. It's going to kind of fall apart. Like, do you see a little bit of Tannehill in, in Desmond Ritter when you watch him? I know they played in the similar offense there under Arthur Smith. Yeah, I, I think it's more you see the offense than you see Tannehill. I mean, yeah. I always felt Tannehill was a better athlete than a quarterback. I didn't think it, I never feel like with Tannehill, it's instinctive. I think it's robotic. I do see robotic in in Ritter. But, I mean, look, you know, he's got a whole offseason. He's probably buzzed light years ahead of it, (laughs) uh, of where he was last year. We know this for a fact. But, you know, look, if you stop the run of Atlanta, will you stop their offense? The difference is going to be this year is Mariota, when he was the quarterback, they could run, right? They had that six-back attack going pretty good. Mm -hmm. Ritter's not really that guy. He's not really a great – I mean, he had 60 yards rushing last year. He's not that runner. Yeah. No, he, he wants to kind of throw from the pocket there versus get out there and run. I know you always talk about Bill Walsh's quote there, but it said year one is when we develop the skills of the player. Year two is when we develop them in the system. Which other players do you think across the league are impactful year two guys that can help teams take that next step? You know, uh, uh, so I was going through that and I was looking at, you know, at the defensive line, like Detroit, you know, Detroit didn't draft anybody in the, you know, you know, they obviously tried to help their defense and do all those things with Mm -hmm. with what they were, you know, this offseason. But I think the one kid for Detroit, (laughs) you know, that, that I was going through in my notes it was the defensive end. I think they drafted him in the second round last year. Uh, hold on. I'll just get his name, you know, uh, uh, Pascal, the kid they drafted in the second round of 22, he had two sacks. He, you know, had, had, had like 30 tackles. I, I mean, they need Pascal to have a really good year. Kaminsky, the kid that they signed from Atlanta, played better than him. They, he needs to take that mother may I step up, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really the key to teams being successful is what player, uh, the Califasis kid from uh, Purdue for Kansas City. Can he really be at six sacks last year, but can he be the starter and replace a Frank Clark, or was he just better as an alternate? You know, those are the kind of players that you really need. Atlanta has a bunch of them on on uh, Atlanta has a bunch of them on, on defense. I mean, that's one of the things Atlanta, if you like Atlanta, you know, they, they've got a bunch of guys that they need to take that step up. Trey Anderson, the linebacker, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, as you go through it, they had another kid in there that, that, that they really kind of feel like that he could step up along with some of the guys that they have. But for me, that, that's going to be the key. Uh, what about Big Daddy's team, the Green Bay Packers? They drafted those two Georgia defensive guys there, Corey yeah. Walker, the linebacker, Devontae Wyatt, He played the good for him last year. Yeah. Even Big Daddy was happy with that player. So, you know, I think to me, you know, they got a bunch of. I don't think Green Bay's as bad as people think they are. I really don't. I mean, they're, you know, Quay Walker, they're going to get that defensive lineman that they drafted last year mm-hmm. in there. Was it Devin Wyatt? They got that. Yeah, Devontae that kid, Wyatt. Yep. Devontae Wyatt. They get him to go in there. You know, I mean, I think they're going to be pretty good on defense. They're going to come back and see what they are. The question mark is going to be the quarterback. How good is he? And can he make enough plays? And are they too young? Big Daddy on board? He's never on board. He's like me with the Sixers. He's got perpetual doubt. Perpetual doubt. It's is a great he, thing to have. Perpetual is, doubt. Is he the one that wrote the athletic piece about, about Gutekunst and all the, the, the Roger stuff? Is he? I, I mean, that's news today. I mean, it's unbelievable. I love how that comes out. I'm so jacked for Luke Russell in the next block. I, I am really am. I can't. I, I love the book. I loved reading it. Such a Buffalo Bills fan. Get your Bills questions ready, Tammy. Oh, I, I got him ready. I got him ready among some other questions as well. But Luke Russell will join us next. The New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller for the book. Look for me there. Grieving my father, finding myself. Cannot wait for this. It's coming up next here on the GM Shuffle. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. You're listening to the GM Shuffle with Michael Lombardi, presented by DraftKings and VSIN. Here is Femi Abebefe. All right, to continue our literature and leadership series here on the GM Shuffle, joining us now, a former Emmy Award-winning correspondent for NBC News from 2008 to 2016, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller for the book Look For Me There, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. It's the one and only Luke Russell joining us here on the GM Shuffle. You've seen him all over the place, Today's Show, Meet the Press, CNN, Morning Joe, but he's gracious enough to spend some time with us here on this podcast. Luke, how we doing, man? As Marv Levy once said, where else would you rather be than right here, right now? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Who, who else could quote the great Marv Levy? I, I love it. Well, I, I love the fact that, you know, you're a huge Buffalo Bills fan, which is uh, important to your life. I, I love that. I love that when you traveled, you wore a Bills yarmulke when you went to the Holy City. I love that. But I want to start off with, you know, you, you had a great line in the book. You said uh, – you basically, you said money from death helped you explore life. So you took this money that you inherited from your father and then you wanted to explore your life. And I thought that was a really powerful, powerful statement to make because you kind of put it in perspective. You weren't wasting the money, you were exploring your life. And in that exploration, you learned a lot about yourself. Yeah. Uh, I worked at NBC News from shortly after my father died in 2008 through 2016, and I had reached a point where, quite frankly, I was unfulfilled. Um, I had had a great gig going. Uh, There is a real upward trajectory. Uh, I was not at the top, top level, but I was playing with the top players, and there was a pathway forward if I wanted to take it. But as I narrowed in on becoming 30 years old, I realized that the light at the end of the tunnel was a little bit brighter. I lost my father at 28, uh, 58, he was 58. I lost a friend of mine at 27. And you realize that, okay, you may have had this success, but why are these voices in your head telling you to reevaluate? That mer- perhaps you are more than just this job and just this city that you grew up in, this Washington political bubble. And I had a chance meeting with House Speaker John Boehner, who I had covered yeah. rather relentlessly as a reporter. And he pulled me aside and he asked me a very simple question, which was, you know, what are you doing here? Asking me about Capitol Hill. And, and I said, you know, I, I don't have a good answer. And he said, you got to think about that, because I've seen people stay in a position for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and not know why they're here. And they lost their entire life. It just went, went by them. So I took that advice and I thought to myself, you know, I've saved a bunch of money over the years. I'm turning 30. I also come into some from my father's insurance policy. Maybe I should take some time to sort of figure out who I am independent of all of this and independent of my last name. There's no better place to do that than to travel and to get out from the United States and just get out from everything I knew and to find comfort in uncertainty. So I started to do that. And as I did that, I realized that there was two things going on. I was running away from something, and that was the death of dad and processing that grief. And then I was looking for something, and that was who am I independent of him and asking permission to be my own person independent of him and his legacy, which is something I never really had the courage to do until I started to travel and and think about it all. You know, it's interesting because I've seen you do plenty of interviews and also just from reading the book and like kind of just getting gathering it. It's obviously it's for not just yourself, but for everyone, because we've all kind of dealt with with grief before in our past. But it it almost feels like it's kind of a an intrapersonal book to where it's like you were kind of seeking things within yourself. Have you always been like an introspective person, even growing up before uh, your father passed away? That's a great question. I grew up as an only child, and if you're an in, if you're an only child, you're naturally introspective, right? Because you have a lot of time alone in your room. There's not a sibling bothering you. Yeah. You have to sort of make believe and, and play with your own toys and, and make up a whole other world. So I've always had an element of that. But one of the things that I realized, especially in our hyper-connected digital world, is that introspection is more difficult than ever. And when you have a job, when there's the hamster wheel, you have all the pressures of a relationship and the pressures of your family, that a lot of that ability to take a moment, take a pause for yourself, that used to be easier before we were so interconnected with Wi-Fi all the time, has gotten a lot harder. 
So I would actually argue that those last few years in NBC, I was not very introspective because I was so focused on the career, so focused on moving upward, winning, whatever you want to call it, uh, and not really realizing that, wait, why are these voices in your head? Where are these anxieties coming from? Why are you feeling this way? One of the things that I, uh, I mentioned to a friend of mine recently, we had this conversation, was in 2007, I had this internship in New York City, and I actually spent seven straight weeks in midtown Manhattan in the summer, like never leaving New York City. So in the middle of the concrete and the hustle and bustle, and it was a wild experience. And this kid who I met in the internship, he said to me, he was a native New York City kid. He goes, you know what? He goes, this weekend, we got to take a train just somewhere out to Connecticut. He goes, I don't know where, but we just got to go. And this is what we city kids do. We go out and breathe, right? <laughs> And I remember the feeling of breathing that air for the first time after being in Midtown for seven weeks, which is like, oh, hallelujah, right? I would argue that now we're so interconnected that it's like con we're all constantly living in Midtown Manhattan for seven straight weeks in the summer, but the way phones and social media are <laughs> yeah. and everything. So it's really important to take a beat and take a pause when you can. I, I thought the book just reeks with authenticity. And I think w when people connect to authenticity, I think that's one of the Springsteen's greatest strengths. And I've got a lot of Springsteen related comments here, but you know, his ability to be authentic and connect to his audience. I thought it resonated in this book. And I wonder twofold question. I wonder a, how you wrote, I, I know you, uh, in the book, you talk about journaling and writing. Did you use a computer? And if you did, how did you work it? Were you planning on writing a book? That would be a and B did you always feel this honest when you started or did an editor say to you, look, you, you're going to have to dig a little deeper? Because when I started writing Gridiron Genius, the great editor, Neil Fine, says to me, Michael, this isn't going to be very good unless you want to dig a little deeper. Did anybody do that to you? Yeah, I'll start off with the second part of your question there. Uh, the most creative is the most personal. And it's hard to be honest, but when you're writing a memoir, that's essentially what the reader expects. Uh, we've all read memoirs of people that paper over significant parts of their life where you're just like, there's no yeah. way you can only give two sentences to that. Now, that is the strength you have as the writer. You control the pen. You can do that. But I think a lot of people will read that and leave and unfulfilled. And so why do you want to perpetuate that sense of unfulfillment if you've had it yourself? So I started out from a pretty honest place. But yes, I did have an editor who said, you know what, Go, he pushed me further. But I was receptive to it. I think a lot of people are not. It's also a generational thing. You know, it's interesting. My mother, who's a very talented writer and journalist in her own right, writes for Vanity Fair. She's been thinking about doing her own memoir. But that generation is a lot less inclined to write about themselves in a personal way. It's just not something they ever did before, and, and they don't like to do that. So I found that interesting. The beginning part of your question, though, was I was going through a difficult moment in 2018. I had been traveling for a while, but I had not come across that aha moment yet. I had not had this clarity about what am I really doing here? The travel that had been so beneficial ended up becoming uh, detrimental because I became quite untethered. And I went back and I reviewed the journals that I had kept from the beginning of the travels. And in those journals, I started to find some purpose. But to really explore those, I had to write them all out. And that took some time. And what I mean by write them out is that I went through the journals with a legal pad, I highlighted stuff, I underlined stuff, and then I wrote it out on a computer in a sort of story form. And it was sort of separate chapters, almost of a travel log. It was only once I got all that out that then I started to see the through lines of what I mentioned prior, which was this looking for something, which is the acceptance of being my own person from dad and then outrunning the grief because I never dealt with the grief because if I dealt with the grief then he was really truly gone. And that was a much too difficult thing to face in my twenties. It was a lot easier to store and ignore white knuckle and work my, uh, my, my butt off and, and keep moving forward. You, part of the title is grieving my father. You talked about, you had never really dealt with the grief there. Was there a pivot point or like a pivotal moment in your life there? Maybe it might have been when you were traveling where you decided, hey, like I should put this pen to paper and actually write this book and, and expand upon what you've been journaling about through your travels. What happened for me was I had expected there to be this epiphany. Right, like I'm gonna be on some beautiful hill in some foreign country, and a, and an eagle will fly by, and suddenly the sun will rise, and everything will come and be clear. <laughs> Doesn't work like that. There are moments <laughs> like that. There are signs like that. But ultimately, what I found was in the writing process, these feelings that had been in my mind, I was able to bring more clarity to. And for me, the real epiphany ends up happening in the Holy Land, which I write about in the book, which is this acceptance of. Hey, 
you might not have all the answers. That's okay. But know that your father loves you and would never want you to go through pain or anguish to preserve his legacy. He would want you to do what's best for you and ultimately to be happy. And I was so consumed with trying to maintain a legacy, keep the flame of Tim Russert alive. I never really thought about that. But one of the things is when my dad first passed, a lot of people took comfort in, in me being on TV. It was, you know, the, the, the twinkle in Tim's eye was still there through Luke. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed doing that for people. It made me feel uh, whole. But at some point while I was doing that, I wasn't looking inward. That introspection that we mentioned earlier wasn't there because I was so focused on that. And ultimately, I paid the price for it. You know, when I read this, I was going through it, and it felt a little Twilight Zone-ish in the sense that every encounter you had with somebody was a whole episode. You know, you know, to me, when you meet Kathleen in Moscow, you know, that's Springsteen's, uh, Eric Church's revision of Springsteen. It was a melody for a memory, right? You know, you bring that back. The guy in the diner that provoked you, you know, the, the Uber driver that was driving you crazy. I, I felt like, you know, the woman on Easter Island that you met and you had a relationship with, I thought all the those were like really many stories that were moving you forward, even though you really didn't know it. You're very perceptive. And yes, and I think that's sort of, sort of the Springstonian uh, aspect of the writing is that you pick up little bits and pieces from the characters you meet along the way and from the environment that you live in along the way. And one of the things that I'm a big believer on is for self-growth, you really have to change your environment. It's easy to do physically if you uh, have resources, right? You go somewhere else and, hey, everything's different now. I'm better. But you can do it internally as well. And there's so much value added to that because once you put yourself in a different environment, especially away from the safety and security that you once knew, and you are a foreign man in a foreign land or you're in a new city in the United States and you don't know anybody and nobody cares who you are, it's a moment of reinvention. But in that reinvention, you can also look back on the parts of yourself that were good, bad, or ugly and start to process them more. And I think that's sort of something that Springsteen says, Michael, is in, in, the, in the sense of his songs, is that a lot of the times he identifies with the characters in his songs, and some of the times he's actually writing yeah. about himself. Yeah. yeah, it was your, like, Nebraska moment. I felt like this journey <laughs> was your Nebraska moment. I just read the Nebraska book. We had Warren Zane's on that. I thought it was, like, your Nebraska moment, that you just keep collecting this. And, you know, one of the things when your dad passed away, MSNBC, you gave a great eulogy, and everybody spoke unbelievably eloquent about all the things that your dad was a part of, and Springsteen sang Thunder Road at it. I thought Mario Cuomo ha- had one of the great lines in his presentation, in his eulogy, because for us in, at Cleveland and then everywhere we've been, we've always wanted to hire Jesuit people because as Mario Cuomo eloquently says, is they're trained at best to be defensed and condemning people to hell. But the, that <laughs> Jesuit training, it's one of the great speeches. People should listen to it. It, it is really, really powerful. And I think it really resonates when you write. Yeah. Uh, it's something that my father grew up in. Uh, in, in Jesuit trained in high school, in grade school, high school, and then college. I went to Boston College and I received my dose there. And <laughs> there's two things that the Jesuits do that are very, uh, that I think, practical, and they are something that you never really forget. One is a very simple question of, uh, you know, why can't you do more? <laughs> right? And it's sort of yep. what is limiting you from doing more, and have you given the most of yourself? The second thing is that you then reflect on that and reflect about what did you do today in the moment? What was the good? What was the bad? Uh, and, and sort of the totality of the person. And what's great about them is, you know, they never quit on anybody, but in exchange for that is you have to give them something too. Uh, and I've always related to that. It's, and it's an interesting mindset that I try to I, I take out into the world is it's you're being perceptive. You think about what more could you do? But you also want to see the, the good, the bad and the ugly of everybody else. I want to take it back to kind of your days when you were at NBC between 2008 and 2016. Obviously, being a Russert, that name carries a lot of weight and still carries weight in that newsroom to this day there. But did you feel any pressure having that last name with yourself there? And also when people inevitably had all the, the nepotism cries and they see your last name when they watch you on TV, said, oh, I'm sure that's how he got his job there. How did you kind of deal with that and, and, and coupled with all the pressure of, of being Tim Russert's son? 
That's a great question. Uh, somebody on another podcast said I was the sort of original Nepo baby, which made me laugh. <laughs> I get that. Uh, like I wasn't naive. I knew that was going to happen right off, uh, right out the gate. Uh, and when my father passed, I got that opportunity that really came from the eulogy that I gave. I thought long and hard about it because I knew that I was going to be put up against an impossible standard. But I also felt that it was sort of a divine intervention. The universe was saying something to me about, hey, go explore this. Uh, you, you, you play it up at a level, just do it for a year, if nothing else. And if you don't like it or you fail at it, it's at least a valuable lesson learned that you don't want to go into the media space like that or, and, and learn from it. I think the hardest thing is you're going to take criticism where people say you are on a very easy path. Uh, everything is handed to you. So you have to react to that. And oftentimes is you work 10 times harder because you feel that I have to prove myself. I did that. And the fuel that you get from that is incredible. And you can tap into that energy. The problem is, is that at some point it wears you down because mm -hmm. everything becomes combative in your mind. You do not necessarily know, am I doing this to prove somebody that I'm just as good as dad or better as dad, or is everything competitive and has to be a competition? And it's funny I always thought there's sort of a few ways that the sort of famous sons of, of prominent fathers can operate. They can either completely disengage, just do their, their own thing, or they sort of hang around and be happy in the sidekick role, or they try and like uh, usurp their father. And you look at the Manning family, it's kind of interesting. It's like that in a way, right? The way the sons have fallen out. You have Peyton that clearly from day one was like, I'm going to be the best football player in the history of football and take all the advantages given to me and double down on them and make it so that nobody can ever say that I'm just Archie Manning's son, right? Mm -hmm. And you have Eli that's sort of in that space, but not as intense, right? <laughs> and you have Cooper and the other guys who are like hanging back, yeah. like, yeah, oh, we're happy to be here in New Orleans and run the camps and look cool. And right. So it's sort of, yeah, you operate in that space and you do what's best for you, but there is a competitive fuel there. And you have to channel it and harness it. And, I, and, and for me, it was good for a lot of years, but some, at some point it became destructive because it's just not my personality. Like I, I don't have that uh, Tom Brady, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, uh, yeah, killer instinct all the time. Uh, I just don't. And my father, interestingly enough, was very competitive like that, but he was a happy-go-lucky, happy warrior, so he could be mm -hmm. friendly and still have that competitive instinct. Um, and, and I've often wondered like, how is he able to do that? That's a, to me, one of the most impressive things is that he would absolutely want to go out and beat you, wanted to rate higher, wanted to get the story, wanted to ask the tougher questions, would absolutely work nonstop, but did it with a smile on his face and was very, you know, kind and good natured about it. Kind of like a John Wooden type, you know, coach yeah. John Wooden at UCLA. Yeah, and a great quoter of Yogi Berra, too. I mean, he could quote every quote that Yogi knew. <laughs> uh, I, I saw, you know, I, as I'm going through the book, I mean, you have seen the ultimate highs of what the world produces and the lows. I mean, the door of no return, you know, the pilgrimage, uh, you know, that you saw. I mean, you saw some incredible things and you were so good at being able to put them in perspective. You know, when you were at the door of no return and, you know, there you are and, and the guy's helping you who's, you know, part of it and, and you're dealing with it and, and he's understanding it. Like, to me, I thought that was really good. And the airport scene where you're trying to get out of uh, wherever the hell you were uh, before they kind of closed the city down. And to me, it was a great portrait of what's great about our world and what's also bad. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that came from eight years of being a reporter, being perceptive of those things. But you talked about the door of no return. I think it's a very important story in the book, and I'm happy you brought it up. And it takes place in Senegal. And the door of no return is essentially the symbolism for what was slavery, was that it was the door where slaves were pushed throughout and did the transatlantic voyage. And it's a very haunting place. And I sought it out because I think slavery is America's original sin. It's something that we're still dealing with very much today, the fallout from that. And I was always very curious and I wanted to see it in its first hand. And the story that you bring up is that I have a guide there and we're going through the exhibit and he points at a, an old painting, essentially, of a, of a slave trader. And he points at the eyes and he goes, oh, you look similar. And I'm taken aback. And my first reaction is, no, no, no. I'm Irish and Italian and German. We came here after, you know, late Civil War. I had ancestors that fought for the Union. And oh, and by the way, you know, we didn't like slavery because that we were working class and that hurt our wages. And as soon as I say that, I immediately go in my mind, oh, my God, 
My instinct defensively is an economic one. It is not one of the horrific mortal sin that is slavery. And you look out that door and you suddenly appreciate the gravity of it. And that is something which comes through travel and it comes through self-awareness. But it's something that I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to do. And it's really why, more so than anything included, is that it's good to think like that sometimes. You know, so oftentimes we get into our little bubbles and you grow up saying, oh, you know, no, no, you're an Irish guy. You were here after the fact. You're from the north. Everything's all good. It's like, well, no, but it, it played into it somewhere along the line. Didn't think about that. It's OK. It's OK to process those emotions. Was that How your, about the silverback oh. gorilla? I, I, I meant to ask that. I mean, I was scared of shit out of that one. I mean, there's no chance. I mean, my <laughs> wife wants to go on safari. My best buddy, Bill Berman, he wants to go. I'm like, no chance. I'm not dealing with lions and tigers and all that. No chance. And there you are so, with the, right face-to-face with it, and you growled. I mean, that's impressive. Yeah. So I went to Rwanda with my mother, and we went gorilla trekking. And these are the endangered mountain, silverback mountain gorillas, just incredible creatures. And you can actually go, and and in Rwanda, they have done a masterful job of keeping them secure and keeping them healthy. And the money from tourism goes back into the ecosystem and, and essentially keeping these animals alive, which is good. But they're wild animals and they're very upfront, which is like if the gorilla attacks you, the gorilla is more valuable to us than you are. So, you know, good luck. <laughs> and you're supposed to, in the moment, you let out this growl to show that you're okay, you're not intimidated, and you don't mean any harm. And we got super close to this. Uh, one young young male gorilla who had started his own family. They kind of roll in tribes. And what I write in the book is the sort of parallels of my own story. And I see this guy, this gorilla, is striking out on his own. He had left his larger tribe. He's starting his new one, going out into the on his world, into the world on his own. And we see eye to eye, and we lock eyes. And that's terrifying because you know this this gorilla can kill you in two seconds if he wants to. <laughs> And he walks by and we sort of lock eyes and it's the acknowledgement and he walks, he goes into the thicket and it's like, you know, live to see another day, have a good one. Not really in danger, but it's the power of nature, the power of where we are as sort of humans in the world. And also like, yeah, I'm rooting for this guy. He's, uh, he's got a good vibe. <laughs> what was your favorite place to travel? Favorite place to travel? Um... As a continent, I really liked Asia. I thought it was just so fascinating, the history there, whether it was in Vietnam or Cambodia, and then the Japanese cultures, the way in which there's such a respect and decorum there was really neat to see. Uh, So I I enjoyed that as a continent. As far as my favorite place, the most interesting is Easter Island. Uh, You know, five and a half hour plane ride off the coast of Chile. Uh, It's the most remote inhabited place on earth. It has those stone heads that you see. On, on TV that are very mysterious. No one really knows why they're there. That's a place where it's so remote and it's so small that when the plane that brought you there takes off and leaves, the whole island shakes. You're like, man, I'm really out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like, there's nowhere to run <laughs> wow. here. And uh, that that makes you think long and hard about life. <laughs> you know, when, when I want to transition into some Bill's questions, but before I do, uh, you know, when I first started reading the book, I thought this book was going to be your your Springsteen song, Independence Days, your dad and you kind of uh, having this meeting. And then I thought, no, no, it's Independence Day with your mom. And then when I got done the book, I, I think it's really it, this book is living proof, a song Springsteen wrote when he had his first son about, you know, finding personal freedom, finding yourself, finding why you're living. And he relates it to his son, but I related it to, and I relate it to my life too, is you find something bigger than yourself. You find out your purpose. And I think to me that that's what this book speaks volumes to is you found your purpose. And wherever you go from here, you know, you've got this with you. As Brokaw told told you, your dad's always going to be with you. And now you have him at the most perfect place. No, and I appreciate you saying that. I, mean, I think part of that encapsulates the journey. The Independence Day part you referenced with Springsteen is obviously the song where he says, I, you know, I can't live with my father. And I had elements and moments of that with my mom because my mom and I's relationship greatly changed for the better after I went on this journey. Yeah. We had, she was sort of the bad cop compared to my dad's good cop, hyperdisciplinarian, worked very hard for everything she ever had, would be a constant reminder, kind of the Jesuit priest in our household of, you didn't earn that, you need to do better, you know, work harder. Um, and I resented that for some time. And it wasn't until I traveled with her one-on-one and I saw how she operated in the world like the ex-Peace Corps volunteer that she was, that I began to really understand her and understand why she was so hard on me growing up, uh, that it was actually a sort of way of 
making you tougher and making you more understanding of the ways of the world. And so I ended up appreciating that. But I think overall, what I really learned here, aside from anything else, was getting to a place of peace about losing dad and then realizing the wisdom of the things you can learn along the way if you're vulnerable. And you open yourself up to experience and to talking with people and going in and finding comfort and uncertainty in places where you may have thought a year or two ago that you never would have been, but now there's nowhere else you'd rather be. And uh, there's, there's a lot of value add to that. Well, but before we talk Bill's Mafia, I want to squeeze in one last question, because I know sure. when, when you were in college, you worked on PTI, you did stuff with XM Satellite Radio. Did you ever yeah. want to work in sports instead of news? You know, there was a long time where I grew up, especially as a young kid, watching uh, Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen and, you know, Oberman and Dan Patrick and those great old school sports center anchors. I was like, <laughs> man, I would really like to do that someday. <laughs> And as I got older and I did that on PTI and XM Serious Radio, I enjoyed it. And then I went into the more hard news stuff. Um, and what I realized while I was in hard news is that sports were such an escape that I didn't necessarily know if I ever wanted to work in it. I never say never, but I think about it. It's like, man, I like actually sitting down with my family and drinking a bunch of red wine on Thanksgiving and not have to be there freezing. Because when you cover politics, you have there's similarities, right? Like you're out in the field, you're out at conventions, everybody's back home, but no, it's a huge blizzard and you're out there. And um, I never say never. I mean, there's a lot of things I like about it, but it, it is, those folks give up a lot. I mean, I think we, we glamorize it as we should, but you think about Jim Nance, right? Who's just taking a t some time to step back. So Jim has reduced his schedule from what it was like 49, you know, weeks on the road to now he's only doing 42. Like, yeah. you know, that's a lot. And I know it's, you know, don't complain. It's a great gig. It's a great gig. And Jim is one of the nicest people in the world and a wonderful ambassador for media in general. But there's a grind there. And for something like me, sports is such a release. I've never, I've been very scared about trying to pair the release with the grind. Yeah. You're living in the Bay Area now. Uh, to watch Bill's no, games, you go to the right Bay now. I'm in D.C. right now, but I, I, oh, okay. well, I was wondering, yeah. how are you, are you, do you have direct TV watching the Bills games? I know. Yeah, or, I, I get or, the Sunday ticket, but I do a lot of Bills backer bars in the West Coast. Yeah. The 10 a.m. kickoff is not, it, it's not <laughs> the best. Yeah, I'm, I'm a night owl, so I'm actually one of the few people that doesn't like the football starting earlier out west. Everyone else yeah. loves it, but I, it's weird because you're like 8.30 p.m. rolls around, and you're like, oh, man, I got four more hours, and the games are all over. <laughs> yeah. Whereas on the East Coast, you can fall asleep in the fourth quarter, and it's like close to midnight, right, and you're, and you're happy. Well, it's, it's interesting. As a West Coast guy, I love the 10 a.m. stuff. You know, that's, it's all I've ever known. Yeah. I grew up in Seattle, live in Las Vegas now. So it's like, hey, I, I almost wish they were at nine o'clock, to be honest. I get too jumped, uh, pumped up for the games to start when they get to 10. But your Bills, last year they were the Super Bowl favorites. Season ended not quite how everybody expected. How are you feeling about them this year? Like, is this the year? Because it feels like they're a little under the radar heading into this season as opposed to last season. That is exactly what I was going to say. And it's exactly where this team needs to be. I think the bills last year had a hell of a season. It was very resilient and mm -hmm. we needed to chart out what that year was. Okay. It starts off in, in May with a terrible racist mass shooting in Buffalo. The team and the community are so interlocked. The team is there grieving with the community is the shoulder for the community to grieve on, but internalizes all that. They go into camp, they start rolling in the season, things are going well, uh, and then they have two blizzards that completely blow up any of the momentum or any really of, of okay, you know, nothing is easy for us. Like We have to travel to Detroit for a game. The players' cars are snowed in. There's a lockdown. You know, People are dying in the streets of Buffalo. So they, again, they have to internalize that. Then you have the whole uh, terrible thing that happened to DeMar Hamlin. God love him that he came through. It becomes uplifting, but that's a huge emotional weight. You had one of your brothers basically die on the field next to you, and you're expected to go back and play the next few weeks. So I think there was so much off-the-field stuff for the Bills that was really traumatic, that was a huge weight, that wore them down. They never talked, they never spoke about it. We could also add the medical condition of Kim Bagula, who was the owner, who, who that was you know, kept close to the breast for a long time. So there's all these issues that they had to deal with. Uh, which I don't think the general public really saw into the degree of which people in Buffalo knew that it was hard. It was hard for this team, the pressures they're carrying. I think this year 
with Rodgers being with the Jets and them getting all that New York media attention, with Miami supposedly coming back, Tua's got these big legs now and he's you know working <laughs> with you know the QB guru. I mean, good. I want every single writer to put the Jets and the Dolphins one, two in the division and forget about us. Okay? That's great. We have a hell of a schedule. There's a lot of primetime games, but I think this team is built to go 11 and six, get into the playoffs, and they're going to play loose. And that is all I care about is just playing loose. They were so tight last year. And then the last thing I'll throw in, uh, Isaiah McKenzie said this, you know, he's now with the Colts. He goes, well, one of the issues is that the Bills are built for a dome. That's what it seems to be like. The offense just thrives in a dome. And that's if there's one knock I have is that, yeah, we watch those games. We, we got outplayed by the Bengals in the weather that should be benefiting us, right? Mm-hmm. And that was something that we have to pay attention to is that if we were a dome team, we likely would have gone 17-0 last year. I mean, we were on fire yeah. <laughs> in those domes, right? And that doesn't work for a team from Buffalo. And I think they understand that and they're incorporate the running game more this season and, and, and get to a place of balance. Yeah, you, you got to like Dalton Kincaid because I think there'll be a 12 team this year. They'll put him on the field, they'll line him in the slot, but they'll also have a chance with Mary as the running back. I think, and I've said this all last year, they needed more power. They needed more physicality up front, and I think that gives them. But I agree with you. I think they're not the hunted. I think the Jets are now the hunted. There's a franchise that has had 13 playoff appearances since 1968, and yet they become this, oh my God, we got everything going for us. So I think when you're not the hunted like the Bills are, I think it reflects flex on that what is your favorite bills memory growing up oh uh all right um it's the don bb leon lash causing the fumble there which is just so emblematic of buffalo i was at that game <laughs> with my father the first super bowl i ever went to in pasadena at the rose bowl i remember that moment i remember how upset we were because it was such a blowout and then bb did that and they replayed it and you could see it and you go oh my gosh that is so Buffalo. It was, you know, we're, we're losing, we're down and out, but Don Beebe is running back and knocking the ball out of that hot dog, Leon Lett's hand. And we <laughs> stopped them from getting that easy touchdown. And we didn't, we never gave up. We may have been kicked down, but we never gave up more recently though. Uh, I would say a memory that I had that it just brought me so much joy is I went to the home. I went to the opener last year, the, the NFL kickoff game, which was the Rams and the Bills in LA. And it was all it was the Rams night, the Super Bowl champions, and they were all celebrating, and nobody really gave the Bills a chance that night. And the Bills went out there and shut a lot of people up. And that was, at least for me, the first time I'd ever gone to an away Bills game where there was a lot of hype, where they not only showed up, they shut up everybody too. And that was a really neat thing to see for me. Yeah, that was- where are you going? Are you gonna go to the games this year? What's your plan for the Bills this year? Uh, they play in DC on September 24th. I'm definitely going to go to that. I will go to a home game. I'm contemplating. I should ask this to you guys. They play in London this year. Is it, is it oh. worth the trip? I mean, it's the, the world traveler. I should probably go, right? You, you go. should definitely go. Yeah, I mean, go. I, I would go. You go spend all the time. There's so much there in London to see. Go to Chartwell and then see oh, yeah. your bills and, and watch the game. And I think those fans over there are so enthusiastic about football. It's just incredible. I would love to experience it. Yeah, and the new Bill Stadium is actually based off the, the Tottenham Stadium, so that'd be cool to see. They're going to play their game there in England over the, the one of their stadiums based off of. So I might go to that game. But uh, it, it, I, it, this is going to be a really interesting season. You know, we're coming up, I think, on some salary cap issues the next few years. So there is a little bit of urgency, but not to be the hunted is really good. Well, you brought up the Bills Stadium, which leads me to my last question there, because I know there were some fans in Bills Mafia who wanted them to build the dome because the team's not quite built for the snow of the teams of the past there. Were you one of those fans there, or do you like the open air out there in Orchard Park? I think what they're doing, and I'm not just drinking the company Kool-Aid, I think they split the difference, which is good, which is that the fans are protective. It's very enjoyable. If you want to sit outside of the elements now, you can, but there still is that element of snow and football that makes Buffalo unique. You know, the dome sounds great in theory, uh, but I just think that the history of the team, that for everybody who says they would have liked that, there's also a lot of people who have been like, that's just not who we are. It's not us. 
Uh, and so they, I think they split the difference and it'll work out fine. But as I said earlier, I can only, can only imagine last season if you had every game with the dome, what it would have been like. Because <laughs> there's a little bit of a greatest show on turf uh, vibe that was going on there. It's, it's yeah. something really spectacular to see. What was the best thing you've eaten in all the six continents you visited? The best thing that I've eaten in all uh, the street food in Hanoi, Vietnam. And you wow. sit on these little milk crates, so your knees are up near your ears. And these folks are cooking the food literally off the street. And you're in your mind like, man, I don't know if I should eat that. Like the charcoal grill is like two inches off where all these feet are. But you do. And you get a huge Vietnamese ice cold beer. And it's the best food you ever had. And you gain 20 pounds and you, and you like it. But I'll tell you this quick story. So I go around Asia for about two months and I eat all this food. When I come back to the U.S., my stomach is killing me. I go, oh, man, I must have picked up some sort of parasite or something, right? And I go to the doctor, and he's like, okay, so where did you do? I was like, oh, I was traveling all around Asia. He's like, oh, oh. He goes, oh. He goes, welcome home. So what do you mean? He goes, it's American food you're eating, man. It has all the sodium. It's all processed. He goes, yep. you were eating fresh food over there yep. all the time. He goes, we're oh. eating off the street. He's like, were you eating in Japan, like the fresh fish that comes in right off the boat? And I was like, yeah. He goes, he goes here, I'm going to give you a secret. He goes, that guy in a rice paddy in the middle of Southeast Asia is actually eating healthier and better than you are in oh, big, abundant that's America. Amazing. And it yep. was amazing. That's amazing. It was wild. That's amazing. Was wild. That's unbelievable. That's a great story. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Yeah. No, I, I, have, I have something that kind of goes along with that because I've, I've been to Uganda before. That's where my mom is from. I've been to Nigeria. That's my name is Nigerian. That's where my dad is from. And every time I go there, I'll eat. I'm never bloated, never nothing. I come back here, like you have one meal and it's like, God damn. <laughs> you, know, you, you feel just, it, right? You feel it, yeah. yeah. You feel it's it 100%. Amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot of sodium in our, in our food. Yep. <laughs> but that's an awesome way to end it. Luke, we appreciate the time, man. Thanks honestly, so much, thank Luke. you this so much. Awesome. Obviously, the book coming, the book is already out. You can get it wherever you get your, your books there. Look for me there, Grieving My Father, Finding Myself, New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Luke Russert. Man, we appreciate it, man. Be well. Thanks, Luke. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it, guys. Awesome stuff. That does it for this Take edition care. of the GM Shuffle Podcast. We will talk to you guys on Monday. Thank you to DraftKings. Thank you to Vison. Thank you to our producer, Elliot Bowman, with us on the ones and twos. Thank you to you, Michael. And thank you to Luke Russert as well. And we'll see you guys on Monday. 